All right, so we are in John chapter 17 as we continue to look at Jesus' last words to his disciples right before he went to the cross. Um, the origin of our faith, really. Kind of the, the essence of what it means to be a disciple. And we get to chapter 17. It's interesting. There are little names we call big biblical things by. For instance, parable of the prodigal son. If I say the parable of the prodigal son, probably every person in here knows what I'm talking about. Many of you could probably tell me what chapter it's found in. And yet, you know that the word prodigal son is not, never found anywhere in the Bible. Jesus didn't call it that. In fact, one of my favorite books is a book about that parable, and the title of the book is The Prodigal God. And until I read that book, I didn't realize the word prodigal means a reckless spender. And the point of the book is the, the, the dad in that story, is he's reckless. He loves a son that any other dad would have rejected. Um, so we call it that, even though that's not a name given to us by Scripture. Give you another example. We, we talk about the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows what I say, what I mean when I say the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus didn't call it that. There's no record of Jesus ever praying the Lord's Prayer other than that time when he gave it to the disciples. Uh, the better name for it would probably be the model prayer. Jesus wasn't saying every time you pray you need to say these exact words. He was saying this is the way you need to pray. These are the kinds of things you should pray for. So I say all that because the section we're about to enter a little less well-known, but some of you will know, is, is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's called that because a, a high priest stood between God and the people. Jesus is, as he's praying, he's praying like a priest. He's praying, first of all, for himself in the first five verses that we're going to look at tonight. Second of all, he's praying for his disciples, the, the 11 who are there, and, and praying for God to take good care of them. And then he ends by praying for us in verses 20 through 26, which is really interesting. You got prayed for by Jesus before you were ever born. You got prayed for by Jesus 2,000 years ago. That, that's pretty exciting. Uh, it's called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is interceding for us the way a priest does. Uh, but understand nowhere in the scripture is it called that. That is the title we've given it. There's a lot of things like that. I don't want to rock your world, but you know that the chapters and verses aren't original, right? That, that wasn't in the original Bible. That was something we added to make it easier for us to read and memorize. Things like that. There, there are lots of things that, that we have brought in that weren't original, and we just need to recognize that. Now, I'm not trying to start any kind of fights. just wanted to tell you that's what this prayer is called. Uh, but let's look at those first five verses, and, and then we'll see, because this first part of the prayer, there are three big truths that we learn. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So again, this is the part of the prayer where Jesus is praying for himself. Nothing wrong with that. We should do that. Uh, and Jesus is a good model of that, but because he's Jesus and he's not us, he's praying about some higher things. And in his prayer, he says some things that teach us 
three crucial truths. And the first is the purpose of prayer. Um, the purpose of prayer itself. Notice he starts with the word Father. Jews at the time of Jesus were extremely devout, extremely reverent. No Jew, no, no practicing Jew in Jesus' time would even use the name God or write the name God. Uh, in fact, to this day, when uh, practicing Jews refer to God, they don't say Yahweh, they don't, say, they don't even say God, they say Hashem, which means the name. Do you realize that? They say the name. Uh, if you look at uh, Hebrew texts that have been copied down through the centuries, you'll notice the name of God is not written. They'll write initials, Y-H-W-H, which is short for Yahweh, but they don't put in the vowels because they want it to be unpronounceable. Now we look at that and we say, well, that's admirable to have that much reverence, especially in a culture like ours where people take the name of the Lord in vain all the time. But the problem with that kind of reverence, that kind of extreme reverence is, it puts God at a distance. It makes God seem forbidding and unwelcoming. Think about how, think about that kind of a world, that kind of a culture where people won't even say the name God and Jesus comes in and says, when you pray, call him Father. Now that hadn't been done before. You can find in the Old Testament places where God refers to himself as the father of Israel and Israel as his son. But no Israelite before Jesus would have said, God is my father. They would have been ashamed to do so. They would have thought it was blasphemy. Um, it must have seemed shocking when Jesus first did that. Now, I need to break in and tell you something, because uh, many of you know this. Many of you, so far you're with me. You've heard this before. You've probably also heard someone say, you know, Jesus didn't use the formal word father. He used a word, Abba, which in Hebrew is sort of like the word daddy. It's a very simple word. Okay, that's only partially true. Yes, he used the word Abba, but that is the Hebrew word for dad. That's the word for father. That's, that is the word. It's not like they have a formal word and a less formal word. Jesus used the name father. So yes, it means intimacy. Only your child is going to call you Abba. But it also means authority. It also means authority. I read an article about this uh, written by a, a Jewish Christian. And he said when he was in uh, Israel once, he was listening to a, 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 an Orthodox Jew and his little boy, and he was trying to teach his little boy the proper way to wash your hands. They were in the airport. He's trying to teach him how to wash his hands, and the little boy was kind of giving him some back talk. And this Orthodox Jewish father said, you do what I say, and when you talk to me, you call me Abba. In other words, that's a term of respect. It's a term of intimacy, yes. Probably the first word any a little Jewish baby learns because women, I know it's not fair, but they always say daddy first. I don't know. One of life's great injustices. Um, but it's also a term of respect, of authority. You are my father. I obey you. He says, the hour has come. Now, throughout the Gospels, and by the way, some English translations don't say that. They say the time has come, which I don't think is the best translation because the word hour is found all through the Gospels, and it always refers to one thing. When Jesus talks about my hour, for instance, when uh, he does his first miracle. Y'all know his first miracle, right? Turning water into wine in, in, at the wedding in Cana. Um, his mother comes to him 
Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, what business is that of mine? My hour has not yet come. Later, uh, they, they want to kill him. They pick up stones to stone him to death. And it says, but his hour was not yet, so he escaped from their grasp. He was like, you're not going to kill me today. It's not my time. Uh, later, when he's arrested after this, he says, and I think it's in John, so we'll see it in a few weeks. He says to them, you could have arrested me anytime. I was, I was in public view. You could have arrested me anytime you wanted. But now is the hour of darkness, the hour when darkness reigns. So our, when Jesus uses it and when the Gospels use it, refers to the time when Jesus' moment of truth will come, when the reason why he came to earth will be fulfilled and he gives his life for us in atonement. Um, he says to, to the Father, he says, so glorify your Son. And that's an interesting thing to pray. Uh, to glorify someone means to honor them. It means to, to build them up or to, to give them honor. And that sounds like a self-serving prayer, doesn't it? And it's true. You and I should never, ever pray to God, Lord, glorify me. That is a totally inappropriate thing for any of us to pray. But in context, what Jesus is saying is, I'm ready to go to the cross. Give me strength to get there. Glorify your son. Get me to that, that purpose for which I came into this world. Think about that. Jesus is praying that he would die well. Glorify your son. Now, in verse 5, he's going to say it again. He's going to say, glorify me again, but it's going to mean something very different. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but notice the purpose of this prayer. Jesus isn't praying that God would change his will. Jesus isn't trying to get God to change his plans. He's committing to fulfill God's plans. So how does that show us the purpose of prayer? All right. So if you ask someone what prayer is for, they'll say to get God to do things. In fact, I've talked to people who have wrestled with their faith. Some have stopped coming to church. Some have stopped believing in God. And one of the stories they will tell is, I had a loved one who was sick and I prayed for them. And they died anyway. So what good does prayer do? What good is God if he won't just do this one simple thing? I know he could. Uh, he's done miracles in the past, so why won't he do that? The purpose of prayer is not... We think of prayer as a way to get God to fulfill our agenda. Look, Lord, here's the things that I want done. I'm bringing them to you because you're bigger and stronger. You can get it done, so here, here you go. Lord, I'm praying. Now, go to it. It's us essentially giving God... A to-do list. But biblically, that's not the case. Jesus doesn't seem to see it that way. He seems to see prayer not as a way to get God to enact his agenda. He says, God, he says prayer is a way to conform me to God's agenda. We think of prayer as a 911 call. I'm in trouble. Please come help. Jesus sees prayer as communion with the Father. It is my chance to be alone with him. How many times do we see in the Gospels? Jesus got away by himself to pray. Jesus went up on a mountain. Jesus went to some desolate place. He got away alone to pray because he needed the communion with his Father. Now, I have to point out, sometimes we do need to make a 911 call to God. Sometimes we do need help, and there's nothing wrong with that. There, it is absolutely true. Scripture shows that our prayers can result in miracles, and you never get a miracle if you don't pray. So 
When you're desperate, when you're hurting, when you're afraid, absolutely bring it to the Lord. He's never going to say you're asking too much. He's never going to say, you know, you've prayed too many prayers. Your limit has been reached. Bring it all to him. Leave it at his feet. But if you only pray when you're in trouble, if you only ask him to do things for you, then you'll never grow. And all you have to do to wrap your mind around that is think about a relationship, the relationship you had with your parents growing up. If the only, let's say, let's say once you got past childhood, you were a, a teenager, a young adult, if the only time you ever talked to your parents was when you needed something, then that wasn't a good relationship, was it? That's not the way a relationship should go, any kind of relationship, a friendship, father-son, mother-daughter, a marriage. If all you ever do is show up and say, hey, um, can't pay this bill, can you pay it for me? Hey, my, my car's broken down, can I take yours? If that's the only time you interact with your father, then how are you going to learn to love your father? But if instead you come just to be with him? Yes, come in the emergencies, but if the main purpose of your relationship is, I just want to know you, because you're valuable, then you're going to grow. And this helps us understand something that's always baffled a lot of people, and that is, why is Jesus praying in the first place? Because Jesus is God in human flesh. If you don't understand that, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Jesus is God in human flesh, so how is he, why is he praying to the Father when he is God himself? Well, you know, so you would say, why is he praying? Why didn't he just do it? If he's God in human flesh, why didn't he just do what are he's talking about? Why does he defer that to the Father? Well, because he wasn't trying to talk his Father into changing his mind. He was trying to spend time with him. And the question I want to ask you is, do you do that? How often do you pray for the purpose of just knowing God better, conforming yourself to his will? How often do you pray things like, Lord, here's the things that I need. Now I just want to talk to you about the ways that I want you to change me. To make me more humble, to make me uh, more kind, to make me uh, more interested in the lives of my neighbors who are lost, uh, to help me, help me reconcile with this person that I, I hurt. I've forgiven them. I don't know if they've forgiven me yet, so help me find a way to reconcile with them. Lord, if there's anything else that you see that needs to change, show it to me. Let your Holy Spirit show me so I can grow, so I can change. That's, those are the kinds of prayers God loves. How many times do you pray for the work of God in the world? Father, I know you care about these people over here in this nation, in this, in this city, or, or in this part of our neighborhood. So help us to reach them. Those are the kinds of prayers that, drew, that draw you closer to God. How often do you do that? That's the purpose of prayer, to conform us to His will. Second thing we learn from this prayer is we learn what salvation is. Now, if you asked the average person who lives in this part of the world, you hear how I said that? In a part of the world where there's still lots of churches, where there's still lots of people who would call themselves Christian, if you ask the average person, what does it mean to be saved as a Christian? I, I happen to know something about this because uh, at my former church, uh, we had a minister who did a, a, a it was a, a day camp every summer. Every summer he would hire uh, older high schoolers and college age kids and then we would have kids from the neighborhood come and just spend the summer with us. So every day their parents would drop them off and we'd have them all day. 
you couldn't have paid me enough. But so this minister, every, summer, every spring, he'd interview these young people who were going to be his workers, and he'd ask them, tell me your Christian testimony. Tell me what it means for you to be saved. And he'd tell me every year, he'd say, Jeff, you'd be appalled at some of the answers from kids who grew up in church, and they'd say things like, well, I've always believed in God, or I've been in church my whole life. Or they'd say, I do my best to obey the commandments. Now, I think if you ask the average person in this part of the world, what does it mean to be a saved son of God, child of God, a Christian? They'd say something like that. It'd have to do with believing certain things or doing certain things or being a part of a church. If you ask the average church-going Christian, I would imagine most of them would say, for me, what it means to be saved is I know that my sins are forgiven, so when I stand judgment before God, he'll have nothing against me and I'll be able to go to heaven. But is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, since you have given him authority, he's, he's praying about himself, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Right here, Jesus defines salvation as giving someone eternal life. But what is eternal life? Again, we think of it as when we die, we go to heaven. But the New Testament often speaks of eternal life as something that happens right now. Not something we wait until we die to experience. Something that starts the day we come to know Christ. Um, so, as Jesus goes on and says, and this is eternal life. And this is eternal life. He doesn't say that once you die, you get to go to heaven. No, he says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is not something in the future. It's a present reality for those who are saved. I'll give you another example from elsewhere in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. I think this is in your notes. Paul, this is the same part of Scripture where he says, By grace you're saved through faith. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, someday he's going to seat us in the heavenly places. Past tense. You are already seated in the heavenly places. And you might go, it looks like earth to me. I don't know what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. I like the way Tim Keller kind of breaks it down. He says, think about different forms of life, right? There's different forms of life on earth right now. You may have some plants in your house, some plants in your garden, some flowers in your in your flower bed. That's a form of life. Those things are alive. But that's a different form of life than your dog or your cat, right? Because your dog and cat can, uh, can move around, they can make noise, they can respond to stuff, they can relate to you. Those are two different forms of life. But then human life is different than animal life, right? I, I'm sorry, all you dog and cat lovers who think they're human, they, they really aren't. They're, they're wonderful. But they don't feel the same kinds of emotions you and I feel. I'm sure. Dogs, <laughs> dogs, dogs can look guilty, but they're not really guilty. Because the next time you leave the house, they're going to tear into that trash again. They don't feel a bit of guilt. Um, they just know they're in trouble. Uh, they don't reason. They don't, they don't have the same kinds of relationships we have. So human life is a different level than animal life. Eternal life is even higher. So in the same way, uh, your life as a human being is much different than your dog's life or your cat's life. 
your life once you've been given eternal life is that much different from the person you once were. This is why Jesus talks about being born again. So let me just give you some examples. When you gain eternal life, suddenly you see the world differently. You see people differently. That person who you used to think was the worst in the world, you just hated their guts, you wanted them to, to die alone in a hole somewhere, and now you look at them and you think, that poor person, that person needs Jesus so badly. I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to love them, I'm going to... I'm going to try to win them over. Uh, the, the person who uh, you once disliked because they were different, because they thought differently than you. Now you think, you know, God loves them. I should love them too. The person who hurt you, you're able to forgive them. You see people differently. That's part of it. You see beauty differently. Before, you could see a sunset. You could see a mountain range. You could see uh, a rainbow. You could see all of nature's beauty and think, oh, that's, that's amazing. But now, with eternal life, you see something different. You see the handiwork of God, and you think, a God who could do that is a God I can trust. That beauty gives you security, because you know if He can do that, then why am I worried? Uh, you, you see your own trials differently. Before, pain seemed random and useless. Now you see, okay, I don't enjoy being in pain, but I can rejoice in the fact that God is able to redeem this, that God is able to, to do something good with this. And I know that when he's done with it, I'm going to be done with the pain. And, and I'm headed for a world with no pain. So you see life differently. You also gain not just a new vision with eternal life, you gain a new freedom. Because before, you're a slave to your desires, you're a slave to your passions, and now you're free to direct your desires and passions toward righteousness. And I'm not making this up. Uh, Psalm 73, 21 and 22, I think is in your notes. The psalmist writes, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So the psalmist is saying, Before I believed in you, I was like an animal. And now I'm as different as the person that I was then as a human being is from a dog or a cat. I have changed. That's eternal life. Now, does that eternal life extend past life on earth? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really good news. So it's not incorrect to say salvation means going to heaven when you die. But that's not the main thing. That's not what the New Testament focuses on. And that's not where salvation begins. Salvation primarily is a transformation of your heart. And you become a new person. You become a higher form of life. A life uh, that just isn't bound by the things you were bound by before. So, what salvation is, and then finally, why God made us. These are big, big topics. He prays and He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If you'll sit and just ponder that that last section that I just read, it'll blow your mind. You'll get goosebumps. Don't just skim over it. Think about it. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, but He knows He's going to, so He talks about it in the past tense. I've accomplished this, Lord. I know this work is done. Now, He's saying, make things the way they were before between you and me. We've been separated long enough. I've been down here on this earth, and, and you've been home in heaven, and I want us to be back together. I want us to be 
uh, in the same place. I want us to have the relationship we had before. I want it to be not where I have to get up on a mountain or, or go away uh, from the crowds. I want it to be where I'm with you constantly. See, verse 5 that I just read, it goes with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The beginning of the book of John, we hear it sometimes at Christmas time because it's about the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you don't know that passage well, you might say, well, what is the Word? Later on, it says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's obviously talking about Jesus. But notice it says that Jesus was in the very beginning. So anybody who says, well, Jesus was born uh, December 25th in the year zero, right? I always laugh at that when I watch the movie Back to the Future. He plugs that date in and says, we can go back in time and see the birth of Christ. And I always just think that's hilarious. But even if you thought Jesus was born on that exact date, that isn't when Jesus began to exist. Jesus has always been. He was in the beginning with God. And it says he was with God and he was God. It goes on to say everything that was created was created by him. And apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. So any idea that uh, Jesus is God's bouncing baby boy, you know, Mr. and Mrs. God went to the hospital and came home with a little baby boy and it was Jesus, that's, get that out of your minds. The father-son imagery is just a way for us to understand that these are two distinct persons, but Jesus and God are one. And not only that, not only that, John 16, 14 through 15, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what the Bible teaches is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. Now, this is one of the sticking points between Islam and Christianity. If you grow up in an Islamic culture, you will be taught over and over again, Christians believe in three gods. They're, they're polytheists. You reject Christianity because God is one. In fact, that's one of the creeds of Islam. There is no God but Allah and, uh, and Muhammad is his prophet. And they'll say, you know, Christians aren't like that. But the Bible is very clear that there is one God in three persons. And you might say, that doesn't make any sense. And you know what? I would agree with you. I can't explain it. I can't understand it. But I don't have to explain something in order to believe it. Amen. I've shared before, I have no idea how internal combustion engines work. But it doesn't stop me from getting in my car and driving home. By the way, I know there are engineers in the room who can't explain that to me. Please don't bother. <laughs> If I could understand that, I would be an engineer and make more money, but uh, not true. But um, my point is, it doesn't have to make sense for it to be true. There are things that are higher than our human thinking can grasp. So another thing the scriptures teach, another thing that we see here is when Jesus says, glorify me so that we can have the glory that we had together before the world existed. Here's where you get really deep. The way the Trinity works, the Father glorifies the Son. This, the Father gives the Son honor. The Son gives the Father honor. And the Spirit glorifies both. 
So again, to quote Tim Keller, he's the one that's explained this in a way that I love, he said it's, it's like a dance. You know, one honoring this one, and this one honoring that one, and that one honoring this one. I mean, here we are in a Baptist church, and we've talked about wine and dancing in one, in one message. But his point is, God didn't create the world because he was lonely. If you ask the average person, why did God create the world? Some might say, well, you know, he was all alone. He needed somebody, somebody to give him companionship. God didn't need that. He had companionship within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Well, then, uh, he's, he cares about his glory so much, he needed people to glorify him. No, he didn't need that either. Because the Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies both. This dance is, has gone on for all time. God created us because he had love and he wanted to share it. Because when you've got something that good, why keep it to yourself? And so as Keller says, when someone gets saved, it's because God says to them, come to the dance and we join in. And we glorify the Father and we glorify the Son and we feel the love of the Holy Spirit coming down to us. And if anybody here, and I'm sure there are some who are sitting there going, yeah, I don't need to hear all this Trinity stuff. I just, I can't understand it. Just understand how important this is. Not only is it biblical. Somebody pointed this out to me a while back and it, it, it really made an impression on me. If God is not three in one, then he's not a God of love. You know how I know that? Because God existed for all eternity before he ever created another living being. Anybody, any being that can exist for all eternity and not be lonely is not a God of love. But because he has three in one, because he had that relationship, we know that for all time he's been sharing love within the Godhead. And now he's brought us in. So that gives a new perspective to one of the most significant parts of the Old Testament. And that's that moment when Moses stands up on Mount Sinai and he says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. And remember what God says to Moses? Moses, I love you. You've been so good. You've been a good servant to me, but I can't show you my glory now. I'm going to have to cover you with my hand and, and you can see my back, but not my face. But we get that. We get what Moses wanted but couldn't have because we live on this side of the cross. Because Jesus has died for us and he has ushered us into the presence of God, we get to see the glory of God. We get to see the glory of God and that's in the Holy Spirit inside of us, changing us, as, as it says in 2 Corinthians, changing us every day as we behold his face from glory to glory, making us a little bit more like him. So we are blessed. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your love that has always existed and your love that has been poured out on us through the cross, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, through the message of the gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be humbled as we think about these things, never feel like we've got it all understood and completely uh, comprehended, but at the same time, let us never stop trying to comprehend it. Let us never stop pondering how beautiful it is. I pray, Lord, that we would pray the way you want us to, 
and that we would lead people to, to true salvation. We would bring them to eternal life. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.